Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, how are you? I'm good, Joe, and I'm sorry I missed last week. Um, how do you like doing it solo? Um, I talk to myself a lot, which is, that, that's, I just called a normal day, so that doesn't really matter. I, I think the crowd, uh, yeah. the crowd doesn't really care. No, right? no, so. they don't actually. So I don't even think they care about us, but and, that's okay. And I'm using the, the word crowd like yeah, a little bit yeah. too. What's liberal. the crowd going to say? Uh, but no, all's well, and mm-hmm. um, I'm glad we're having the conversation we're having today because it's quite timely for a couple of reasons, not the least of which it relates to an NYBC sports event last week. Right, in uh, early May, early April, and which we did on startups and kind of the disruptive disruptor yeah. space. Ended up being one of the best ones, I think, yep. that that group has put together because mm-hmm. it was, um, it, we had a bunch of properties there, including uh, the property represented by our guest today, that um, had a very interesting take on how you build a brand and a sports business circa 2018. In a disruptive space. In a very disruptive yeah. space, yes. Yeah. So, um, Tom's now set the mystery for who we're going to have. So, uh, Maybe one or two more yeah. clues before yeah. we... Our guests in the yeah. soundproof room that we're in, we're not in normal Studio C or Studio D, which we normally are in, but uh, is Ben Johnson, the head of business development and marketing for the Drone Racing League. Ben, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Ben, great to have you. And first time we've had the Drone Racing League, obviously, on. Excited to be here. Uh, but it's one of the great stories in the business right now, mm-hmm. uh, as evidenced by Nick's comments last week. So. Yeah, and that's Nick Korbicheski. Um, who was there? CEO and founder, CEO and founder yeah. who has a, a title. An he does have yep. <laughs> a real one. Um, so why don't we kind of, before we get into DRL and where it is today and the brands that are involved in the technology, um, you have kind of an interesting past, path with Nick to get to this point. So why don't you kind of tell us for everyone who's listening how you got to DRL? Yeah, I'll try to explain it, but even even then, it, it rarely makes sense of trying to explain it. To in-law is what I'm doing now. And we don't, make, we don't make sense to anybody. So uh, drone out. racing itself is, mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting thing to get people excited about. But how I ended up here, uh, graduated college, University of Colorado, got into politics, worked actually with the mayor of uh, Denver at the time, Mayor Hickenlooper. Thought the world of him, but looked around and realized that there were not many other politicians that I had a, a similar affinity for. Uh, and very quickly realized that politics might not be where I was going to build a career. Made the mistake of getting a real job here in New York. Uh, far too early when my friends left to go ski and uh, take a few years off and find themselves, as Boulder graduates typically do. Uh, I got a job at an agency here in New York, came and started in PR, uh, loved the work, didn't like what it all added up to. Um, sort of felt like a small cog in a very big machine, but luckily had some people that I looked up to. Ended up at a few big agencies, Edelman, Weber, Shanwick. Uh, learned a lot about how to build a book of business with clients that had high expectations for really thoughtful, detailed story building. Resonated with my background, English uh, major in college. All right. Uh, And then decided that I wanted to do something totally different. Ended up at Tough Mudder, uh, the events company. Uh, Got to be part of that global expansion as we built that brand into something that uh, went from a couple hundred thousand people doing to millions of people doing. Uh, absolutely love that. And that's where I met Nick, the CEO and founder of DRL. He at the time was the chief revenue officer there and uh, eventually got the bug to do something a little different, found drone racing, and, and I ended up here with him. So that's sort of the, the quick version. So did you actually make a conscious decision to go from the agency side to the property side? Uh, I sort of fell into it. A friend of mine um, had reached out to me f- that saw a possible job Uh, Open at Tough Mudder, knew the brand a little bit, knew I wanted to do something that resonated with me personally. Um, But I was at a fortunate place where I had a lot of background, both in the comm side and the brand side, that that fit them at the time. 
Um, so I would say it was more serendipitous and really something thoughtful. Um, I sort of lucked out and met the right people. So there. Did, did you have to do a tough mutter to get the job? I did, and it was wow. much harder than I expected it to be. <laughs> I know Donna uh, never did. Uh, yeah, no, a few people got off lucky and, and didn't have to do them. But th- I think that was part of the joy of you would you would go and try to build up an audience and. Uh, actually being given the opportunity to run one yourself, you sort of realized what the driving factor was for so many people. So I loved it. So when did you, when, so, so Nick went to, came here first. Yes. And you so, found out about it. Did you have any knowledge of DRL I before? Didn't. Uh, when he left, uh, I think he was still trying to figure out what he wanted to do okay. next. He knew he wanted to be in the media space. Uh, and there's a great story of him meeting Ryan Gurry, our head of product, uh, behind the, uh, or in the parking lot of a Home Depot to see what this FPV, this first-person view experience was all about that, that Ryan had really been innovating and leading the way on. Uh, Nick actually saw an article on Vice uh, where Ryan was trying to explain to people what a, what a quadcopter was. And Nick saw it, reached out to him, they connected and just instantly hit it off and shared this vision for something that even the first few times I saw it in person didn't see, to be mm-hmm. totally honest. It was, mm-hmm. it was an idea of Star Wars, an idea of something that... Um, gets back to Mario Kart and F-Zero and all these video games that we played as kids. But uh, the fact that the two of them shared an expectation of what this could be so early on uh, was something that it's taken other people a while to get to in terms of the scale of what it could could possibly be. So obviously, um, Tough Mudder is the experiential side. Uh, What convinced you to come here? Other than you knew Nick's leadership, but you know, standing in a Home Depot watching drones fly around may not have been your thing, as opposed to getting splashed with mud and doing kind of very, very jolted with electricity. <laughs> jolted with electricity. Um, what was the deciding factor that made you come here? Yeah, so I, I was really fortunate in the sense that I really believed in Nick. Um, I had seen his uh, ability to build a team, get people passionate about all following uh, very big ideas, and, and how you put that work together as a, as a group of individuals that ladders up to something larger than yourself. Uh, in terms of the actual business, I was fascinated by the challenge. It, mm-hmm. it is an interesting time in media, an interesting time in sponsorship. Uh, we have something that is content first, so it allows us to go build audiences in countries very far away. Uh, around the world, it's instantly global. We own the underlying IP, things that if you've ever heard Nick talk before, these will be themes that are uh, will resonate because Nick comes back to them a lot as sort of the core tenets of DRL. But uh, I sort of instantly saw the value of something that we could own the underlying IP of, build an audience the way we wanted to. There's no governing body for this. There's no historical baggage that comes with it. We can really build it from the ground up. And, and owning the IP, and we've had people come on and talk about gaming and esports, that's kind of the essential for building out a massive esports property now, which is the game companies own everything, which I guess DRL owns lots of the pieces that go into what it is. So why don't you kind of walk us through where DRL is right now? Sure. Yeah, I was thinking it would be helpful if you just break it yep. down by yeah. category. So the content slash product, the monetization model, the, the media and distribution model, that would, be, that would be good. And maybe even a little bit about the investors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for anyone that hasn't Googled this yet, uh, drone racing is high-speed drones flying three-dimensional courses. It looks a lot like the pod racing scene from Star Wars. So we take uh, quads that are about the size of a dinner plate, a, a camera that's fixed on the front of that, Pilots wear a pair of goggles that feeds a live camera feed back from that camera. Um, and they take a course that we built out through three-dimensional spaces like a Miami Dolphin Stadium, Royal Palaces, museums, subway tunnels, and fly those courses at upwards of 90 miles an hour. So it's, it's a short one-minute burst of action laddered up into a larger overall race of, of individual heats. But there's a ton of either very bite-sized moments 
or full events where you can follow 12 pilots competing uh, against each other to win and earn spots in our championship of, uh, event series. Um, in terms of, of how we've sort of structured each of those pieces, all of this is designed to create a futuristic sport, um, something that takes the same models of a Formula One, of a, of a Formula E, uh, MotoGP, and takes racing events to iconic locations, takes the best pilots in the world, and then we can build out media partnerships, sponsorships. Um, and getting back to the question of owning the underlying IP, uh, people assume that the technology, uh, even on our side, assume that a lot of the technology was in place to put these types of events together. And the reality was, uh, it became apparent to Nick and, and our head of product, Ryan Gurry, very early on, uh, that this was something we would need to build out to actually put on compelling races that met people's very high expectation for what this would look like. So if I tell you it looks like Star Wars, your willingness to see something that looks like a backyard version of two home-built drones flying around pennant flagging will not meet that expectation. It is a very high bar that we set by going out and talking grand futuristic uh, sport. Um, so to build that out, we've had to invent a lot of technology that didn't exist. It wasn't something you could go buy uh, the drones off the shelf. You couldn't buy the pi- uh, the pilot tech off the shelf um, and even today this is something that we're building out licensing partners to make it easier to get into the sport because it, it was a very high barrier something that nick t- talked about at the event last week was the the global nature of the business in terms of participation and interest could you talk about that for a minute yeah it, we've been fortunate that there's no developed country that we've looked at that doesn't have a small grassroots group of people already doing this so it was instantly global when people first discovered this when they first found the tech uh, it was shared very quickly on forums like Reddit, uh, on social communities, explaining to people what this was, how you could build it yourself, how you could get involved. And we found groups that shared similar uh, ideals in terms of technology, in terms of entertainment, go out and quickly put together their own leagues. So they would figure out how to build them, and the next natural piece of progression would be, how do I see who's fastest? Um, so that's something that's actually, we think that this started in Australia about five years ago, but very quickly there are groups in Brazil, there's groups in Russia, there's groups in Japan, there's groups in India, there's groups in Israel, there's groups in Germany. So we have found a way to tap into those organizations, show them what we think the, the top version of this could look like in terms of a professional circuit, but also align very closely with what they want in terms of the structure of a sport and how do we know who's fastest how do we know who's best so let's talk about some of your partners uh some very recognizable names have come along both for content distribution and as brand partners um who are some of them and and how do they how are they involved so we've been incredibly fortunate to to align a a meaningful list of brands and uh, media sponsors that have added a lot of credibility to what we wanted to do and then help us really scale quickly on the brand side, uh, our title sponsor is Allianz, who interestingly enough shared a uh, very ambitious vision for what electronic sports, for what um, uh, drones would be on the consumer side in, in a decade's time, um, built out the title sponsorship of this circuit. So we now do seven events around the world, four countries uh, as part of this Allianz World Championship circuit. That is a multi-year uh, multi-channel partnership with them. They have, a, again, big expectations, everything from racing in their stadiums to um, finding ways to provide consumer insurance for drones. So uh, there's a long list of obvious... Uh, so, so before yeah. you leave Allianz, 
So it actually is. There is an ROI. This isn't a vanity spend, like you said, for their stadiums. They actually can see how they can translate this into something that the consumers will actually go back and put against what they're going to buy. That's exactly right. This is an incredibly thoughtful partnership for them. They have a longer-term vision for this than most partners would have when they get involved in either any existing sports league because not only is there an IP upside, um, they also understand that from a messaging perspective, if more people are flying drones, they need to find a way to ensure those people. They need to find a way to be involved in the business. So it's a very So an example would be in Munich where Bayern Munich plays. Yes. Have you had an event there or are you having an event Exactly there? right. So actually this year, um, we have the fun problem where we're actually racing in another partner's facility in BMW Welt, which is the largest BMW museum across the street from the headquarters of BMW. So we're actually using that facility this year. We will be in a different Allianz facility this year, which we haven't actually named yet. Uh, it will be an international uh, soccer stadium. Uh, set in another iconic location, but we hope to use all of their different facilities. So they've got stadiums in, I think, seven countries right now that all lend okay. themselves to this. So, and before you go on with the with naming some of the partners, I'm just curious, like, and in, in for the in arena experiences, a live experience, what kind of audiences do you get? So it's interesting right now. So we do both live events for spectators and post-produced shows for our broadcast partners. So ESPN, Sky Sports, ProSieben, OSN, Fox Sports, Disney XD, a list of a few of our global broadcast partners. So we're in 75 markets now, all with this post-produced show that we create coming out of the events. That was really more of, of a reflection of where we were in 2016 when we first started setting up our media deals. Being post-produced allowed us to figure out things like the technology, the scoring, the sponsorship, all the pieces of building out a league that are incredibly complex um, that, that reduce the risk if we weren't a live sport at the time. We've since started scaling on live audiences. So in London last year at our championship, we had more than 2,000 people on site, in person, watching the live racing. Uh, they were actually able to gamble on the individual races on site, in person. Uh, we had music. We had food trucks. We had a DJ. I think it was an incredibly um, fun social experience. So if you think of horse racing, it's a long day, short burst of action. I think we take some pieces of, of sporting events that we like uh, as a team, and we take little bits that we think work for uh, a tight two and a half hour, highly engaged, highly social experience to be able to watch moments of action, one minute races, and in the downtime, gamble, eat, drink, hang out you know, with friends. I hadn't yeah. even thought about that, but you know, using the making a comparison and insurance to, to insure well, everybody so that they but, don't but crash. Also, right. just you know, kind of structuring an afternoon like a day at the races, yeah, which I think is one of the great sports experiences you can have. Yep, um, it's it's a those are really really good in-person experiences that I think a lot of people, even in this disrupted digital age, would like very much. So if you can mimic that, it sounds like a really good move. Absolutely. And this is what we touched on it uh, earlier, but looking at how the media landscape's changed a little bit, it also helps us not just with the audience on site, but in terms of the bits of content we're putting out. Mm -hmm. I, we, we can put out a full race that is only 60 seconds long that really helps someone understand the, the breadth of the sport. Or somebody can watch a full two-hour show on ESPN and, and really understand the characters, the personalities, the venues involved. But I think in terms of that live event experience, we've taken everything from what esports have done well to, again, even traditional sports like horse racing, F1, and tried to find what we like best about those experiences and bring those on site for the drone racing. So let's talk a little bit about uh, storytelling and personalities. Where did the, the pilots come from? And then as we sit in this office who are the people building the drones and where did you find them? So uh, the pilots are some of the most talented FPV drone pilots on the planet. 
they are able to race a ventilation system at 80 miles an hour. They can take 90 degree Tom turns. Tom was just doing that before 50, he got yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not um, even sure what that means. And, and the difference between flying one of these and what you've seen on the consumer side. So if you've ever talked to someone that owns a DJI or a, a camera drone that they take out in their backyard, take pictures yeah, no, of their I've house or dogs, yeah, yeah. these are the exact opposite. So imagine that being more equivalent to your Honda Civic. Uh, the drones that we build in-house at DRL, all custom built by our team of drone experts, are uh, 0 to 80 in less than a second. So they are incredibly fast. They are fully manual. They are totally different machines. So this is more like the F1 of drones in terms of the capability of the, the, the drones. They are incredibly loud which is also great for the on-site experience. It's visceral, you get the sense of speed, uh, especially the, given that you're in close proximity to the, uh, to the drones themselves. So to be clear, individual pilots cannot engineer their own drones like a NASCAR with racing teams. Really interestingly, we will have pilots on-site at the event that have never touched their drone. So uh, our pit crew actually manages all the drones for pilots. So it becomes, <laughs> a, it becomes a test of pilot skill, yeah. not who okay. was able to afford to bring the most high-end drones on-site. Right. Um, it's actually something that you've seen a lot of changes with even F1 over the yep. last year in terms of how they're trying to keep spec classes in a range where everyone can compete, uh, whether right. that's reducing the cost of engines uh, or the amount that you can spend on an individual engine. But we have pilots that got into the league through our simulator. So we do uh, an eSport tournament with Swatch where we actually find pilots for the league online. And that has real gravity, real physics. And so there are pilots that will get into our league that have never actually flown a physical drone, which gives you a sense of the blend between the digital and the real of, uh, and the potential of the sport. Um, and the, the, the young men and hopefully some women who are building these things, as we saw when we walked in, there was a whole bunch of young people in the front room or people in the front room putting together something, doing somewhat. I don't know what it was, but um, where did you find them? I mean, and did they come in? Now I would imagine people are coming to find you as well. They are. And and the group of people in that room right now, all of our drone technicians are really some of the most advanced minds in manual drones. Um, so they build uh, the spec classes for us, everything from motors. We create the software, the hardware, uh, fully assemble a fleet of 600 identical racing drones. We call it the Racer 3. Uh, it's our most advanced version right now. And the guys working on those drones have been flying for the last five years, six years. They've been part of the sort of community groups that have really pushed the technology forward. There weren't a lot of commercial applications for manual drones early on. I think actually as you look at where this space goes over the next decade, it's much more likely you will have manual uses for a drone. If you're going to deliver a defibrillator from here to the FDR, the mm -hmm. chance of being able to do that manually and at higher speed are, are much higher if you're if you're using a manual drone versus I was thinking about a pizza delivery, drone. but you can <laughs> right, do that Right, yeah, too, sure. So, or pizza. So. Uh, it'll get so, to you quicker, but yeah. that's one of the interesting uses where the manual use of these will have a ton of commercial applications, whether it's infrastructure inspection or disaster relief that you can't do yet with the autonomous uh, uh, technology. So where might one test a drone <laughs> in the middle of New York City? So the middle of New York City is not a good place to fly. If anyone is listening that lives here in New York, do not fly a drone in New York City. It will <laughs> right. not go well. Uh, you can Google uh, the countless stories of individuals that have thought they'd get a unique shot of the Empire State Building and spent a night in jail. Um, <laughs> there are many places uh, out in, uh, we've actually used a park in Queens. Uh, there, there's a lot of FAA regulation and for the right reasons around where you can actually fly a drone. 
Um, but ha happily now there are maps that will teach or show you where you can go safely learn to fly. So uh, it's really making sure you're not in a close proximity to an airport, a helicopter pad. Um, and obviously as you're learning to fly, especially on the FPV side, we actually push everyone to our simulator because you'll reduce the amount of time you spend crashing. You'll reduce the amount of time you spend having to go chase down, figure out where you put the drone into the woods and get it out of the tree. So mm. all of that experience gives you a better chance of when you first get out there with a real drone, you'll actually be able to fly it in a, in a safe and also fun way. So talking about media partners, ESPN is obviously one of yours. And ESPN, uh, now with Jimmy Pitaro at the head, have some challenges from the traditional to kind of where you're going. Um, why ESPN? How has that worked out well for you? And how do you guys think you can help them especially with ESPN Plus now, I would imagine, get to uh, a new audience or a new kind of understanding for where sport will go in the future. Yeah, so we're huge fans of ESPN, and we had talked to everyone uh, that we could possibly uh, get intros with when we were first launching around where the content should live. ESPN had the most aggressive vision for what this should be, uh, which was very interesting for us. I think people jumped to digital first. They jumped to other platforms. ESPN had a very strong and clear idea of how they could help us build a fan base for this. So traditional TV uh, in the past hasn't been set up to test and try new things, really. It, it, there's a such a high demand in terms of something new coming onto those platforms that uh, you can look at this across any content type on TV, Arrested Development, which I think was brilliant, didn't have a long runway to build up a fan base. Yeah. Um, so you could, be, you could be the best thing on there, but if people can't find it, if they don't know it exists, uh, it's hard to stay there. And ESPN gave us uh, a, a wonderful version of how we could go out and build a fan base together. So we had a, a multi-year, multi-channel partnership where they would help us build out a fan base. Um, I think we hope that we bring something to them which is unique where people looking for something new um, get something that not only it's something new but something that they never even knew existed. So we're always happy when we find, especially on broadcast, that we're reaching demos that even if we were – focused only on digital, uh, or especially if we were focused only on digital, we wouldn't be reaching. So I think that we see this as a wonderful place to build up a meaningful fan base. Uh, ESPN Plus is a great example where they're continuing to try new services, find new ways to engage different audiences that either focus on specific sports within their very large library of rights. Um, but it's been wonderful for us. It's added a lot of credibility. It's given us the opportunity to really refine the show that we produce for ESPN. Uh, I think that is a very high barrier in terms of their expectation for what that has to be. So the fact that we can deliver for a partner of that caliber gives us a lot of confidence that we're building out something both from a production standpoint but also from a racing standpoint. But Ben, that said, is it fair to say that you guys think this is more of a Gen Z play? like appealing to digital natives with this native digital sport effectively? Because that's kind of been the, I think, the conceit mm -hmm. in the market yep. that I know, Joe, you and I have talked about this before, that one of the advantages it has is that it's actually more appealing to Gen Z, you know, the, the, the computer and screen generation, than let's say millennials, especially older millennials or boomers who can't really appreciate this as much. Yeah, and you know, oddly enough, this gets back to your question around who the pilots are. Um, uh, so I'll sort of start a little bit further back, but so Sully's not flying. But the pilots come from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. These are people that share a similar affinity for speed sports or tinkering or engineering. Uh, we have found. 
fantastic pilots that range in age from 11 years old to 65 that can all fly maybe someone does fly one maybe yeah because <laughs> um, the experience once you put on the goggles it's totally immersive it's unlike anything you've ever seen where we have reporters that will come out to a field try a pair of goggles on and fall to their knees when someone takes a vertical hairpin turn at 90 degrees because it's such a you're instantaneously tricked to being on the front of the drone so long-winded answer to your question there's absolutely high expectations we have for ourselves on digital channels i think in terms of our audience we want to be relevant to everyone mm -hmm. i think we have very ambitious expectations of there is no reason that a traditional fan of f1 shouldn't love this it's mm -hmm. robot racing in three-dimensional mm -hmm. space through one-of-a-kind venues um and and so at the same time we need to be equally capable on all of our digital channels as we are on our broadcast channels so i think it might be um a grand vision it might be something that we have to grow into over multiple years but in terms of the channels we're on today i think we hope that we're reaching people as effectively on youtube that want to that might appeal to a younger gen z audience as as effectively as we're doing on on an esp i guess one quick follow-up not to belabor the point but do, do you think this is closer in terms of viewing experience and consumption experience to esports or to let's say f1 it's a really good question uh i think we <laughs> And not to take the non-answer, we'd like to think that we blend both together, okay, right? Fair. So it's digital no. and the real. We have we have both the immersive experience where we could create a six-hour event out of out of our races that I think um, channels like Twitch are doing an incredible job of giving mm -hmm. people longer formats, less production quality, really just getting personality-led, um, great content out in front of a die-hard audience. I think we would like to. Or we, we hope that we can meet both expectations. Yeah. So, but nothing on Twitch, to be clear, yet. We, we have, actually. So we do okay. some of our eSport tournament on Twitch. Okay. Um, so we've, we've got people playing the simulator, talking about how you actually fly competitively and learn. So if you want to get into racing, that's a great channel where if you really want to mm -hmm. spend a couple hours learning about how to get into FPV racing, you can look at Twitch, you can look at YouTube. DRL is active on all those channels. At the mm -hmm. same time, if you want to watch just a race uh, with your kids, or learn about the sport for the first time, ESPN's got a really tight produced two-hour recap of, of each of our events. FPV stands for? First person view. Okay. I was going to drone speak. Else, yeah, sorry. Right. And what, what is your season? <laughs> so the season actually starts on broadcast in September this year. Uh, we will uh, put the show out on ESPN, on Sky Sports, on ProSieben, all of our international uh, global broadcast sport partners first. Uh, from there, we then actually start looking at events for 2019. So we'll start to announce some of our partners, our venues, the new places we'll actually be racing as, as the next year expands. And those um, are post-produced events? They are right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, before we get to our last two questions, I did have one other question about the viewing experience. So 2,000 people go. What are they? Are they watching on screens? Do they actually have goggles on yet? I would imagine at some point everyone will have some kind of goggle on. But So if you went now to a race somewhere, what, what would the experience be? So it's a mix of both. Uh, we, if you've ever been to an F1 event uh, and you watch the cars go around a corner and you need to see what's happening at the next turn but you can't physically see it, they've got great massive monitors up so the whole crowd can follow along. We take that one step further with the goggles on site for each of the audiences to be able to follow the uh, sorry everyone in the audience to be able to follow individual pilots. So everybody so, gets a pair of goggles? Not everybody. There's enough goggles floating around right now at one of our live events that each person who wants to be able to watch that and get that experience cool. will be able to do it. So Fat Shark is our goggle partner they make an incredible product where people can go watch and experience that first person view right along with one of their pilots in real time wow so so it begs the question and just a quick follow-up vr ar extensions at some point or anything under discussion yet absolutely so I, I think the most important thing for drl in terms of what we look at what's coming next is that there is no 
version of this that we aren't excited about. So whether it's being able to ride along in real time, whether it's being able to fly the sim against drone pilots on the real courses in real time, all of those are things that we want to build out and continue to do more with. So it should look like Mario Kart in the sky with real drones by the time we're done. So who are your investors? So we've been very fortunate with our investors. We have investors that mimic each of the three core pillars for DRL. So we're a technology company, a sports company, and a media company all in one. Our technology investors include Lux Media and LHV. Our media partners include MGM, Hearst Media, Liberty Media, Sky Sports, ProSieben. There's there's a long list there sure. that have been involved on the media side. And then we even have a few traditional sports partners. Uh, uh, Allianz actually came on mm-hmm. uh, after the commercial partnership as well. RSC, Stephen Ross's venture team uh, was actually our, our first investor. So we've had a really impressive list of individuals that have helped us navigate the complexity to try to do all all three things. Wow, interesting stuff. So, so we always ask our guests two questions as we wrap up. Um, how do you stay smart and current on what's going on in the industry? And then there's a lot of young people who listen to this so and people looking to change jobs. So what advice do you give people looking to get involved? I'll tackle the advice one first. I, I have been now in the sports space for about five, six years. And I'm always interested when we get people that come on looking for something in sports specifically. It's typically because it aligns directly with one of their passions. It's the same way, though, that I feel when I look at I'd love to be a musician. I'm not a very good music. I'm not a talented musician. I'd just like to be in a band. I always push people that want to get into sports to go find the relevant experience elsewhere. Get really good at, at the details of, of managing an account team, of working in the weeds on all the different facets of running a business, of being in, whether it's marketing or biz dev or any of the different ways you can touch the sports industry. And there's countless different ways to be involved. Get really good on those skills somewhere else and you're a lot more appealing. Just being a fan, I think, makes it hard. It would be a fun thing to do. It doesn't really mean passionate most good. Yeah, it's so, passion. So. It's not to take away the value of being able to mm-hmm. really enjoy your work, but I think that's something that people start. They hope that they're going to go run a team, run a league very early on. Um, I think there's a lot of other ways to get further along in sports if you really put your time and effort into learning from other places first. Um, and then the last question is, how do you stay current with everything that's going on, whether it's sports or tech or business? Where, who do you follow? Where, where do you get your information from? So there's a lot of places we look at every day to try to track all the actual changes in the media landscape in terms of what's going on on the sponsor side. We read a lot of the blogs, SBJ, Variety, uh, try to be as informed on those as possible. But honestly, Twitter is the platform that I go to every morning. I find it to just be incredibly informative with different places, different perspectives, a lot of people that look at this, the industry from very different angles. So whether it's the sports side, the investment side, the technology side, all very easily aggregated and put in one place so that we can stay relevant each day. Nice. Twitter. 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 More and more, <laughs> Joe. Yep. That's the answer. The book Seems mark. like we've been on a roll with that yeah. as an answer, and, yep. uh, which is music to our ears because we're both big fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was awesome. Thank you. And then uh, most yeah, importantly... Let's, let's t- tell us about how we can find... Yeah, how do people find uh, you and DRL? Yeah, promote whatever you'd like on any of the platforms. Uh, well, like. let's start with Twitter, just okay. since we're there. Uh, Twitter is Drone Race League. We couldn't actually fit Drone Racing League. It was too many characters, unfortunately. So uh, people look for us in the wrong place there sometimes. Uh, Facebook page is always active. Uh, YouTube is probably the best channel. So if you really want to try to understand the visual side of this, see all the wonderful footage we have explaining what this sport is. And then obviously I hope people tune into ESPN. So we start in September, watch the show. It's a remarkable journey into the pilots, into the technology, into the venues, and the sport itself. Is there anything on Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. And that's okay. Drone Racing League. The Drone Racing okay. League, sorry. Nice. Okay, cool. 
All right. Well, that was a good uh, good chat uh, between uh, Nick's fast, presentation like last week <laughs> yeah, and then today. Joe, you and I are ready for mm-hmm. our quiz about <laughs> the Drone Racing League. But I think uh, for everybody listening, it was uh, hopefully as interesting to you as it was to us because this really is a glimpse of where things are going with the disruptive nature of, as you well described it, kind of the intersection of sports, technology, and media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you guys are kind of uh, probably one of the most interesting examples in the entire market right now. And the one thing that I think is going to correct, if it hasn't corrected already, is futuristic, because this is absolutely not futuristic. It's actually here now and is <laughs> almost leading the way versus... Right, but what's cool go. about it, it can evolve right. with the advancing For technologies sure. as, as probably better than most certain quote, sports, yeah. Yeah. because the way things are going, especially uh, visually in terms of virtual experiences, uh, this could be one of the most interesting uh, entertainment experiences of the future. We certainly hope when, so. Yeah, when, when we see this evolve. So uh, thank you again, uh, Ben Johnson from Drone Racing League. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Tom. We'll see everybody next time on The Cusp Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and the host is Joe Favorito. My production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore S. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.